how often the following happens. A dad tries to teach his son how to take care of his bicycle, how to take care of the lawnmower. Son just doesn't get it. As he gets older, the son gets his first job, gets fired because he doesn't take care of the equipment that he's supposed to take care of. And finally, one day when he is, I don't know, late teens, early 20s, he comes home and he says, Dad, I see it. I got it. Somebody told him in a way that got through to him. Maybe he wasn't ready before. And that's the way it is. So the Bible will take things that are important and say them again and again from different authors and in different ways to help us learn something that maybe we don't get. So we've been in a chapter of the New Testament called the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that talks about the importance of faith in living in this world as a Christian. And already the writer has told us about any number of people in the Old Testament in ancient times that had faith in what their stories were. Today, he comes to another person, is the person of Moses. And he does this so that perhaps if one person's story doesn't resonate with us, maybe that of another person will. Here was what we did last week. Last week in Hebrews 11, we read from verse 23, where Moses' parents were slaves in Egypt. They had a little baby. But they were Hebrews, and the Egyptians, who were their taskmasters, were afraid that too many Hebrews were being born and were going to rise up and take over the country. And so they commanded that each family, if he had a girl born, you can let her live. If they have a boy born, throw him into the Nile. The parents of Moses, these slaves, instead made a little papyrus basket, lined it with tar, put it in the Nile River to see what would happen because they could not bear the thought of killing this child. And they prayed that God would rescue him. Of all people to come to the banks of the Nile to wash and bathe was not some other slave, was not just some, any old woman. It was the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. She saw the baby, realized it must be a Hebrew boy, took pity upon him, and decided to adopt him as her own daughter, son. But Moses' little sister was hiding in the reeds not far away and came up to the woman and said, would you like one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby while until he's ready? Yes, I'll go get someone. The little girl goes and gets Moses' mother. Moses' mother is then paid by the royal family to nurse this boy until he is weaned and can go to Pharaoh's palace. And thus, Moses' life is saved. His parents are saved from destitution because they're being paid by the royal treasury to raise their own boy that Pharaoh had commanded to be killed. And now we come to what happened 40 years later. Those families, that family, I mean, had somewhere between three And five years only to implant into baby Moses the knowledge of the one true God. And then his mom handed him over to an entirely different world, the world of the Egyptian palace. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God, his fellow Jews, rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value 
than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him, that is God, who is invisible. What life was Moses adopted into when he was handed by his mother after being weaned and given into palace life? It was the 18th dynasty of Egypt on the throne at that time. Of all the dynasties before or since, it was by far the most wealthy and the most powerful. And so when Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses, she adopted him into a world of splendor that few people in the world can even imagine. His being in her family was now an open door to the treasures of Egypt. Just like Greece before the time of Christ was the center of culture in the world, and Rome during the time of Christ was the center of all power and culture in the world, in the time of Moses, Egypt was the center of the world for power and culture. Now, doubtless, when this boy, sometime between the age of three and five, was handed over from his little slave hut family to the daughter of Pharaoh and her royal family, doubtless he missed his birth family. But doubtless also he was fussed on by his mom. If the Pharaoh that was in power at that time was, as I proposed last week from certain scholars, the certain Pharaoh named Thutmose I, it meant that his daughter had had only one child in her life. It was a daughter, and that daughter had died before she was totally out of childhood. And so this left the Egyptian mother of Moses with no other children to dote on and to lavish attention on but Moses in God's providence. Now, Moses must have noticed a lot of things about his new life, but my guess is one of the first things he noticed was the food. After all, he was a boy. His former slave family, doubtless, could have a few vegetables, perhaps, in whatever tiny little bed of land they could scrounge up, and doubtless they could fish. And the Israelites, years later, when they left Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness, said, oh, we remember eating melons and cucumbers and leeks and garlics and so forth. But like today, the best food was reserved for the people with the most money. And the people with the most money were the people with the most power. And they were Pharaoh and his family. Now, Egypt, at that time and for many centuries before and after, was the granary of the ancient world, the supplier of wheat. It was extraordinarily fertile. And yet, no rain was needed there because every year the Nile River overflowed. You may know that Egypt is much taller than it is wide, that the vast majority of it is just a wasted, dry desert. But in the center where the Nile River runs, once a year, about mid-June to about the end of September, because of the rains far in Africa that flood the Nile, the Nile overfloods its banks. And now, all that rich soil that comes from Africa goes right into the borders of that great river. It washes into the canals, it leaves this thick red soil, and there you can grow things that just, for much of the rest of the world, it is a marvel what they can produce. Of course, the Nile teams with fish, but the monuments from there have pictures of 
gardens, lush gardens, flower gardens, fruit gardens, with pavilions and colonnades and orchards of palm trees and fig trees and pomegranates and lemons and oranges and plums and mulberries and apricots. You just can't believe all the things that those people had at their fingertips. And then, of course, the palace of Pharaoh would have bakers and would have the top chefs in the country. And they could take all these ingredients and make mouth-watering concoctions just to the very maximum. And also as Moses grew, besides all that daily food in front of him, he grew of age to drink the wine. The vineyards of Egypt were very much like the vineyards that are famous in Italy. And the vines were trained to go up along wooden trellises, and these rich clusters would hang down. The food that he had was so much different than what he had known as a very young boy. And beside the food, well, the surroundings that he grew accustomed to were absolutely amazing. Moses' former family, as we know, were slaves, probably in a mud-brick hut, very probably a single room for the entire family. But the rich, the powerful people in the royal family, the kind of surroundings they were used to, it's hard to even imagine. One writer called them dreamlike. These palaces and monuments and statues and obelisks of enormous proportions that were meant to dazzle the eye and impress you with the power of that country. Just to pick several of them. Picture a pyramid that's there. Its base covers 13 acres. If you have ever been in London and seen St. Paul's Cathedral and have walked to the top and looked down at that dizzying height, It is 80 feet higher than St. Paul's Cathedral. It is made out of 7 million tons of cut stone. This was what the great and the rich and the favored in Egypt were used to seeing all the time. In the city of Thebes, the capital in southern Egypt, there was a great temple. And opposite that temple, which is impressive enough, is a hall. That hall is big enough to accommodate the entire Cathedral of Notre Dame from Paris within its walls without ever touching the walls. And its columns are like medieval cathedrals in Europe, only with this difference. Unlike any medieval cathedral in Europe, the columns of this hall were numbered 140 columns. The central columns were so large, it takes six men with arms extended to go around a single column. These are the halls that Moses walked in, in his new life. And when you approach that hall, there is a walkway that has a double row on each side of sphinxes, 60 to 70 of these enormous creatures. Inside these buildings, my goodness, they're festooned with carpets and with drapery and with eye-catching art and with attractive courtesans manning it all. The furnishings are lined with endless gold. And at night, those very buildings were lit with endless lamps and torches, and the gold captured the light and made the effect as dazzling in the night even more so than it was in the day. And so access, though, to these buildings was largely confined to the rich, the powerful, and especially to the royal family. And yet even another form of access was given to Moses 
when he was transferred from one family to another, he was given a key that was meant to unlock all of life's doors. The key he was given was a first-rate education that you could get anywhere on the planet. Scholars have noticed that no country in the world so valued education and no country in the world that we know of started education earlier than the Egyptians. All branches he would study. Moses would have studied numbers, arithmetic, and certainly geometry. In the sciences, he would have studied chemistry. He would have studied medicine and astronomy. He would have learned books of law and books of philosophy. He would have delved into music and into poetry and certainly into writing. Years later, in the book of Acts, Stephen said that Moses was educated, quote, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. The door is open to him for a brilliant career. And it's not just classroom knowledge that he gained. Again, Stephen said that Moses was, quote, powerful not only in speech, but in action. And what he means by that is Moses would have been taught horsemanship, bowmanship, chariot skills, military strategy, hand-to-hand combat. We know that Moses was no soft man because later in his life he killed a taskmaster that was whipping a slave. And later yet in his life, when he was out in the desert, And some shepherd girls were at the well trying to water their flocks. And a bunch of shepherds drove them off. Not one shepherd, multiple shepherds. Moses came and beat up those men and drew the water for the girls. He was a tough guy. It'd be like watching a movie of Chuck Norris or Bruce Lee to watch him do that kind of a scene. So here he has been shot, uh, we might say, escorted into a life of luxury, wealth, comfort, music, poetry, entertainment, intellectual stimulation, the self-confidence that he had of an athletically trained body, and the deference and respect of others as he passed, all under the umbrella, all under the warm shadow of the smile of the man who was now his adopted grandfather, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And yet, in our passage we read, when Moses was grown, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What did it entail? What did it cost him to refuse to carry that name? Well, first, he realized that he had to choose one kind of life or the other. He could not keep his feet in both. The life of the opulence of Egypt or the life of the slavery and the poverty of God's people, the Jews. Now, for Christians in America... For a long time in America, American Christians had no big choices to make. You didn't have to choose between Christianity or being respected by your neighbors. For if you were a Christian, you were respected by your neighbors. Um, We were considered for a long time a Christian nation. And even though everybody wasn't individually a churchgoer, if you exhibited Christian virtues, your society would appreciate that. If you were churchgoing, if you were clean-living, if you exercised sexual restraint, if you were known as a male, as a family man, if you had self-control, people appreciated you. When I first started being a pastor here 36 years ago, if I would meet somebody in public and they'd say, oh, what do you do? I'd say, I'm a pastor. They would say, oh, good, that's good. It is very different now. Now it is the way it was 
in Egypt. Because in Egypt, you cannot be a worshiper of the true God and be in favor with what was going on down there. So we read in verse 25, what did it entail to lose the title of the daughter of Pharaoh? Moses had to choose something important, and that meant he had to refuse something important. What did he have to choose and refuse? Let's take the choice. We read in verse 25, Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Why would he choose to be mistreated? It's not that suffering itself is good. Uh, The Bible commands masters, for instance, to be kind to the people that serve them. Why did he choose? Well, he knew that in Egypt there were two worlds. The first world, he thought, was when I was a boy. I had godly parents. They worshiped the true God. They impressed upon me that Jehovah made the universe and runs the universe. They impressed upon me that we are his people and we're only to serve him. But my parents are slaves. Do I go with them? Now, my second family, he thinks, is the royal family of Egypt. Everyone who bows down to them gets ahead in life. And the royal family worships power, luxury, comfort, convenience, human achievement, and they worship a whole battery of gods, each one that was stranger than the other. Who does he choose? The low life with the worshipers of Jehovah or the high life with the worshipers of the gods of Egypt? By age 40, Moses had now almost for four decades tasted Egyptian luxury. He had had only a few years with his parents to get the truth of the Israelite nation, of the one true God. But the small drops of truth he got as a little kid were enough to dilute the ocean of influence from the court of Pharaoh. We don't know exactly when Moses' spiritual life kicked in. Did he flirt with the world for a long time? Was he spiritually sensitive ever since he was a boy? We don't know. But the day came when Moses chose Jehovah, and he chose to identify with Jehovah's enslaved people. But to make that choice, he not only had to make that choice, he had to refuse something else. And here is what he refused. He refused his princely status in the royal family. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now that identity had been everything and would be anything to anyone in the royal family. A year ago, I attended a reunion from my high school in the 1970 in Baltimore. And there, as different ones told their story, you could hear how one of the things they enjoyed was being identified with certain people. One guy told us how he had been on Oprah's television show because Oprah wanted to interview him about his book. Well, as soon as he says that, everybody wants to talk to this guy. Another girl, she had gone to college with the actress Vanessa Williams and had rubbed shoulders with her all the time. So everybody wanted to talk to this girl from my high school. Well, Moses could drop the name of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's palace, and that opened to him every single door. If I announce title, I'm sorry, not if I announce, but he decided I renounce my title, my position, my identity with the king, my identity with his daughter, both of whom are considered as virtual deities, 
And in doing so, there were no paparazzi to follow him like Prince Harry and Meghan of England when he abandoned his royal family. There were no lucrative book deals. There was no celebrity status. Rather, he said, I claim my identity with the despised Hebrew foreigners whom Jehovah calls his sons and daughters. What was the result of this awesome choice? What was the result of this enormous refusal? We read in verse 5 that the result was mistreatment with the people of God. Moses became a hunted man. For 40 years, he had to flee and just herd sheep in the remote parts of the Arabian desert after all that palace life. We read in verse 26 that what he had to endure was disgrace for the sake of Christ. Wait a minute, you say. Moses lived like some 15, 1,600 years before Christ. What do you mean, disgrace for the sake of Christ? Well, here's what it means. The word Christ in the New Testament is the same as the word Messiah in the Old Testament. They both mean the same thing. They mean an anointed one. Moses' parents had taught him the following. Moses, get this because we won't have you for very long. The world started when God created it by his own powerful word. Our forefathers, Adam and Eve, lived in a garden of luxury that was wonderful. You might say what, like what Pharaoh lives in. But Adam and Eve sinned. And God put a curse on this world, and they were thrust out of the garden, and life became hard for all of us. But since it was the devil, through the mouth of a serpent, who tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, God said, and our forefather Adam and Eve heard him, to the serpent, that is, to the devil, one of the descendants of Eve will one day crush your head. And that curse will be reversed. And perhaps Moses thought, that's me. God has brought me to the palace for this time. And so he tried to help the people by just doing it his own way and killing an Egyptian guard. And yet that didn't work out. And he learned, I am not able to be any kind of Messiah, any savior. Someone greater than me has to be the one who my parents told me about that said that a descendant of Eve would crush the head of Satan, and change the world. And so he sensed, I am just a shadow of this coming Savior, Deliverer, Messiah. And so his helping the Jews by leading them out of slavery, away from Pharaoh, caused Moses great suffering in the same way that when Jesus Christ led us out of sin and death and hell, he could only do so by causing him great suffering. The sufferings of Moses mirrored the sufferings of the future to come, Christ. Okay, so we admire Moses for doing this. But how in the world did he have the juice, the power, the strength, the perseverance to carry this off because it was so difficult? How was he able to do it? Our passage tells us twice. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. 
Our passage says it another way in verse 27. Moses persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So with the eye of faith, he was able to do these things. But we might ask, how can you get that kind of faith? You might say, I've been a Christian for a lot of years and and I just don't have very much faith at all. You may not be a Christian at all and say, I admire people who are able to believe, but I just have trouble trusting myself to a God and to a Bible. I, I can't have that kind of faith. How was he able to have it? Our passage makes clear he was able to have it in a way we don't expect. Moses was able to have faith because he considered certain facts. I'm sorry to do that when you don't have a water bottle with you. Think about the facts that he considered that enabled him to believe. We tend to think of faith as a feeling. Oh, I'm a person of faith. I I feel good when I'm in church. Or some people say, well, some people are thinkers and some people are feelers. And it's the feelers who are believers. They're not really using their heads. No, no, no. It's that second little word in verse 26 that tells us that. Verse 26 says, Moses regarded something. That word means to think, to think something out, to consider something, to have an opinion about something after you've weighed the facts. We read that Moses in his thinking regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. What are the things he weighed that caused him to conclude that following God and identifying with God's slave people were more treasure-giving than living in the palace with Pharaoh? Well, he considered first this. Moses concluded that sin brings pleasure, but that heaven brings ecstasy. And there is a different. Verse 25 mentions the pleasures of sin that were in Egypt. And when it says that, it's not necessarily talking about debauchery. It doesn't mean that Moses had experienced sexual license or that he was continually drunk or any such thing. Rather, the pleasures of Egypt that are primarily talked about in the Bible are the prestige and the love of comfort the love of ease, the love of luxury, the entertainment, the enjoyments, the good and easy life. Moses had known these pleasures. He had enjoyed the treasures of Egypt, doubtless. But verse 26 hints that Moses knew that there were enjoyments infinitely better than anything that Egypt could ever offer. Because it says in verse 26, Moses considered that suffering disgrace for Christ's sake was of greater value than Egypt's treasures because he was looking ahead to his reward. He is thinking about something long after he is to die. Do you remember how his parents taught him? Well, doubtless his parents had taught him about this. Doubtless they had sung songs to him. Doubtless they had prayed prayers with him. But one of the things they did is told him the stories that had come to them from the beginning of the world, Adam and Eve and all the people who loved the true God that came down to him. And here's what his parents told him. Moses, four centuries ago, 
The greatest city in the world was Ur, far to the east of us. It was very much like Egypt. It was glorious, and it did not know the true God. And little Moses, furthermore, that there was a man there named Abraham, and God appeared to that man and that man only and said, Abraham, leave this great city. I want to take you to something far greater. I will guide you there. I'm not going to tell you where you're going yet. It's a land of milk and honey, though, and you will love it, and I will give it to you and your descendants. And so Moses heard about his ancestor, Abraham. And then he heard that once Abraham got to the land of milk and honey in Canaan, it wasn't as great as he thought it was going to be. He had many hard years there. And somehow, along the line, little Moses' forefather Abraham realized God was just bringing me to the earthly promised land in order to get me out of the sins of Ur and in order to make me think about a far greater promised land, which is going to be eternal in the heavens. And so Moses came to crave going to heaven. And as C.S. Lewis said, the relationship of heaven to the greatest of earthly pleasures is like the relationship of a vacation at the ocean on the beach for a little kid who is instead playing in the mud puddles in the street on the slums. The mud puddle on the street in the slums is Egypt. Heaven is a vacation at the ocean for a little boy. Moses pondered these things and he weighed them. And he weighed not only the fact that that, uh, sin brings pleasure, but that heaven brings ecstasy. He weighed the fact that sin's pleasures are brief, but God's ecstasies last forever. We read that in verse 25. He chose mistreatment with God's people over the pleasures of sin for a short time. By a short time, he means only one lifespan. Do you remember when you were really little and you were old enough to enjoy Christmas and the next Christmas, by the time it came, it felt like six lifetimes in between. You got a little older and it was still a long time, but at least you got it. You got to be a teenager and okay, it's still longer, but it's a little quicker In your 20s and 30s, Christmases got closer together. I will tell you, if you're not there yet, when you get in your 60s and 70s and 80s, they get closer yet. When you get really old, you blink and say, I'm sorry, Christmas already wasn't a Christmas yesterday. Now think about it. When Moses made this decision to leave Egypt and go with God's people, he was 40 years old. He had started to grasp the brevity of life. He had gotten to understand that the pleasures don't last forever and your ability to enjoy those pleasures don't last forever. And so he calculated to himself, life is short. Eternity is long. And he weighed the shorter-lived treasures of Egypt with the eternal bliss of heaven. As our passage says, he kept looking ahead to the reward and that is what gave him the faith to turn away from the luxuries of this life and to follow the one true God. And so, how do we conclude this? If you are a Christian in this room, trying to live a godly life, you know that that is getting harder all the time. Your culture says to you, 
that is not good and pressures you to celebrate all the wrong things and to abandon many of the right things. And everything around you in this 21st century culture screams, think about now, now, now. Invest yourself in today, today, today. Well, God gave the Israelites a son of Pharaoh, Moses, who was willing to leave his comfort to rescue them from physical slavery and to take them to a better land, the land of Canaan. But God gave the entire world a son not of Pharaoh, but his own son, who was willing to leave heaven's comforts to rescue us from spiritual slavery and death and hell and to take us to a far better promised land. And so God requires of us to believe in him who is unseen and to believe in his son who has died for us. And that means God requires of us a choice. Will you basically keep your hopes and dreams, time, attention, money, and delight in this world? Or will you refuse to do that and put your hope and attention and joy and everything about you into the people of God and the salvation that he brings? Faith in Jesus is worth everything. So I close by saying, may it be said of each one of us in this room, I'm going to use the male terms here just for brevity's sake, but every time I use the word man or he, it also means girl or woman or she. May this be said of you. By faith, this man refused to be known as a son of this world. He chose instead to be mistreated with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin For a short time, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater riches than the treasures of this life, for he was looking to the heavenly reward. May it be said of you that by faith he left his obsession with now, not fearing what he would lose, because he saw by faith the one who is invisible." May you bow your heads and ponder these things and pray about them for a moment. Now may Jesus, who began our faith and will see it through to the end, may that Jesus dwell in your hearts. May you believe in him strongly. May you call out to him for his help when you don't. May you acknowledge that you need someone greater than yourself. And may you bow the knee and bend your heart to the God who made you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May his blessing be with you. And may you know his peace deep in your soul. Amen.